Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the true crime podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the second episode of season 5. I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's episode in which I welcomed criminologist and best-selling true crime author Christopher Berry D to the show. It was amazing to pick the brain of someone who sat down and interviewed so many different serial killers. I've read a few of his books now. He sent me his newest one. I can't wait to read that. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed doing it. Now, as you know, at the start of each episode, I like to break the ice a little bit with two opening icebreaker segments. The first of which is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. And this week's dad fact is thus. In Japan... It's common for golfers to purchase hole-in-one insurance, as it is traditional for them to throw a lavish party to celebrate making that shot. The insurance payout covers the cost of the party, souvenirs for the guests, a tip for the caddy, and a donation to the golf course itself. I'll never need that because I don't play golf because I am shit at golf. And I don't play games that I'm not very good at. Games, sports. I'll stick to football. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Hi-ya! This season's haiku comes from The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku 2 by Rose Bundy, and here is this week's. It's very apt. Tied, he sobs and shakes. Sitting, waiting, savouring. I raise the hammer. A haiku, it's a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5. It's also meant to be read in one breath. There is a link to Rosa's book in the episode description if you're interested in buying it. And if you want to try and win a copy of one of Rosa's haiku books, then please send me a haiku that you've written. I'll read it out on the show. The best one's going to win. I'll let Rose choose. But if you want to enter, that's what you can do. That's my intro waffle done. Let's get into this week's episode. This case was suggested by listener Pam via Instagram, and this week we're in Merseyside, a county in northwest England with five boroughs. The boroughs in question are Nosley, St Helens, Sefton, Wirral, and of course the city of Liverpool. Of those five boroughs, we're looking at Sefton this week, but more specifically the village of Melling. Here's my five quickfire facts about Melling. The name Melling is derived from the old English name Melingas, which translates literally as the followers of Myella, Miala, M-E-A-L-L-A, let you be the judge. Number two, Melling Rock, the highest natural point in Sefton Borough, has the remains of a Stone Age settlement around it. Number three, the English Civil War, which took place between 1642 and 1651, saw one of its more insignificant battles take place on the land around Woodhall Farm. Number four, the Leeds and Liverpool Canal passes through Melling. Hell of a fact. And finally, Will Sargent, the co-founder and only ever present member of English rock band Echo and the Bunnymen, was born and raised in Melling. I couldn't tell you one song by Echo and the Bunnymen, though I have heard of them. As you can probably tell, I was pulling at strings with those facts. It was a difficult find, but we got there in the end. Now, Melling, it's only a tiny village with a population of 3,493. That's according to the 2011 census. I don't think the 2021 census data is back yet. 
Included in those few thousand residents was the villain of this week's story, a young man named Brian Mark Blackwell. Born in 1986 to Sidney Blackwell and his mother Jacqueline, Brian Blackwell had a rather ordinary childhood. In fairness, Sidney, or Big Brian as he was known, was roughly 54 when his son was born. Jacqueline was around 43, so to say they were geriatric parents, it's a fair comment. Sidney met his second wife Jacqueline, or Jackie, as she was affectionately known, in 1960, with both having been married and divorced once previously. Brian wasn't his father's first child, though. Two children were born to Sidney's first wife and are significantly older than Brian. As far as I know, Jackie didn't have any other children, but don't quote me on that. Given both of Brian's parents were older than the average parent age in the UK, 30 for women, 33 for men, it makes sense that their approach to investing in Brian's future was the top priority. They put a substantial amount of money away in various accounts to save for Brian's college and university education. With Sydney having two kids previously, he also benefited from the whole been there, done that thing, which I imagine can only be beneficial when having another child. Described as being well-mannered, pleasant, intelligent, Brian excelled in school. He attended a public school as well, so his exemplary grades were even more impressive. When asked by his teachers what he wanted to be when he grew up, his response was, I want to be a doctor, which delighted Sidney and Jackie. They pushed their son in an attempt to help him achieve his potential, though sometimes Brian's cockiness and extroverted nature took priority over his schoolwork. Even so, his nickname was Brains, which showed how highly his family and friends held him in regard. One thing Ben excelled at on a physical level was tennis, although he perhaps tended to big himself up to others a little bit too much regarding how talented he was. As he grew older, Brian's tendency to lie pathologically increased substantially, and some of the lies are absolute corkers. He went around acting like he was a superior tennis player to everyone else at the tennis club, and he made out that no other young prospect in the country was better than him. During his college years, which in the UK occurs between the ages of 16 and 18, Brian's lies had become more elaborate and more convincing. He was in a relationship with fellow 17-year-old Amal Sabah, whilst attending Liverpool College, which at the time of this story's events cost over £2,000 per term to attend. I tried to find out the entry cost for 2022, but I couldn't find them anywhere. It's probably a secret. A need-to-know basis, one of those things. Amal Sabah's family originally from Jordan in Western Asia, and both of her parents are physicians. So with Brian's aspirations of becoming a doctor, you can see why he likely got on with Amal's parents. Bringing it back to his lying, listen to this. He convinced Amal that he wasn't just a hot UK tennis prospect. Instead, he said he was ranked as number one in several magazines. He doctored numerous magazines to show his name at the top of each list. It didn't stop there though. Brian fabricated a sponsorship deal with Nike worth over 50 grand. He forged the paperwork and everything. As far as Amal knew, the paperwork was authentic and her boyfriend was a superstar. The next Tim Henman, if you will. One fascinating aspect of this story that I discovered whilst conducting my research is that Sydney and Jackie often preferred Brian to hang around with people similar to them and their sort of age group at the local tennis club rather than him going out with people his own age. 
Naturally, kids are rebellious, and that side of Brian came out more and more as he grew older. At college, Brian studied maths, biology, chemistry, Spanish, fully expected to receive an A grade in each subject. He's not a daft lad, far brighter than I was. If he achieved those grades, his dream of attending Nottingham University, which at the time of writing is ranked as the 24th best university in the UK, would become a reality. It's worth noting that Brian's two main university choices were Nottingham and Edinburgh, with Brian's preference being the former and his parents' preference being the latter. Both universities eventually accepted his application, and his parents allegedly contacted Edinburgh directly to confirm that he would be attending their university. As his final year at college drew to a close, more time was freed for Brian to continue impressing Amal with his elaborate lies. But why did he do this? Well, in his head, I suppose he felt he would lose Amal if she thought he wasn't such a high flyer. He asked Amal to be his tennis manager and he wrote her a cheque for £39,000. He will have been at panic stations when it bounced, but he can't have been shocked. He barely had a penny to his name. Not one to stop at such a stumbling block, Brian instead went to the bank and withdrew a lump sum from one of his parents' accounts. The account in question was set up to help pay for Brian's university fees when the time came to apply. If you're wondering why he made this withdrawal, let me explain. Seeing as the cheque to Amal bounced, as it was always going to, Brian wanted to make up for that with a significant gesture. He went out and spent around £6,000 on a Ford KA, which he gifted to Amal. Jackie discovered what had happened and was far from happy with her son. She visited the bank and explained that the withdrawal should not have been allowed and for the bank to be wary of any further requests from Brian without his parents' presence. Brian turned his fraudulent activity to his parents' credit cards, with the bank avenue now effectively being closed. We've now arrived at a critical part of the story. On the morning of July 25th, 2004, Brian attended the tennis club with Sydney as he did so regularly. At some point that day, the then 18-year-old Brian returned home and used his father's credit card to purchase two first-class flight tickets to America for Amal and himself. You'd think he would have learned his lesson by then. He'd already made several credit card applications in his father's name, had the lump sum check to Amal bounce, lied about living in the same neighbourhood of some of Liverpool FC's players, and pretended to own a supercar. Regardless, the tickets were booked, and his parents were outraged when they found out. The exact series of events that happened next is difficult to confirm. The reason for that will become apparent in just a moment. Whilst upstairs packing his suitcase, Brian's parents discussed what they would do with Brian due to his lying and fraud getting more and more out of hand. At some point, Brian then made his way downstairs, and he attacked both of his parents with a claw hammer and a 10-inch carving knife. The viciousness of the attack, which saw Sydney stabbed 30 times and Jackie stabbed 20 times respectively, was such that, at first, the police thought the pair had been shot. Let me just remind you, these are Brian's parents. Brian first debilitated his parents with the claw hammer, before stabbing them repeatedly. The reason I say the exact series of events is hard to confirm is because the only one that can tell the story is Brian. You'll notice the term parasite used in the title of this episode. Parasite is the official term for the intentional killing of one's father and or mother. You might think that Brian's brutal murder of both his parents was the worst part of this story. Well, 
You haven't heard what happened next. Brian went back upstairs, had a shower, and then he took his now fully packed suitcase to a Miles house where he spent the evening. As far as Amal knew, her superstar boyfriend was taking her on a luxury trip to the United States the following morning. Amazingly, the trip went ahead and the young couple spent the next 17 days across the Atlantic. They visited New York City, they stayed in the presidential suite of the Plaza Hotel there, they also visited Miami, San Francisco, they stopped off at Barbados for a couple of days, he racked up £30,000 in debt on Sydney's credit cards in the meantime. There are photos available online of the smiling couple on their vacation. The images are haunting. Poor Amal had no idea that she was having such a wonderful time with a cold-blooded murderer who'd killed his parents the day before they boarded their outbound flight. Worse still, she had no idea their desecrated bodies remained at their home for the entire duration of the trip. After the couple returned to the UK, Brian had moved in with Amal and told anyone who asked him where his parents were that they were on holiday in Spain. It took a good while for anyone to raise concerns about Sydney and Jackie's whereabouts as their neighbours thought they must have gone on holiday based on what Brian was saying. It was only when a neighbour attempted to post a letter through the letterbox on September 5th 2004, which was exactly six weeks after the couple was killed, that the alarm was raised. They noticed a strange smell emanating from the couple's home and called the police. When the officers broke into the property, they found Sydney and Jackie's bodies in the living room where their murderous son had left them. Sydney was still sat in his armchair. In August 2004, the month before his parents' bodies were found, Brian found out that he'd received an A grade in each of his four courses. He was due to start his medicine course at the University of Nottingham only a few days after his parents' bodies were found. He was taken in for questioning shortly after the police discovered his parents' bodies on September 5th. At first, Brian denied any knowledge that his parents had been killed, insisting he was in America when the murders had happened. On September 7th, 2004, Brian said the following whilst being interviewed. I think, because obviously I've been thinking it over in my head, that obviously I am here because the police suspect me of doing this. I have been asked what I consider to be slightly irrelevant questions, and the main topic, the sole reason why I'm here, is to question whether I've done it or not. So, from going to David Lloyd the day before and being with my parents, then to saying goodbye, travelling with the taxi driver to my girlfriend's house, and then straight to the airport with her, and on the plane, I've not been home. Coming home, you say this happened quite a few weeks before, and I believe this rules me out of the question of whether or not I have done it. I am obviously very happy to talk to the police, and I want you to get to the bottom of it because this happened to my parents. But, obviously, I believe I should be dealt with more as a witness than a suspect. I think I have proven that I was not here when it happened, and obviously, if I was not here to do it, then I should not be held. The following day, a sobbing Brian Blackwell admitted to having attacked both of his parents with a claw hammer, as well as a knife. He referred to the flat part of the hammer, meaning the part you hit the nail with, as the soft side, which I found very bizarre. He then said, It didn't seem like I was doing anything. I'd never stabbed anyone but it didn't feel like it was going in or anything. It didn't seem to have much effect on him, and I had to push him away to stop him. He pushed back an awful lot. I couldn't believe what I'd done. I just couldn't believe what I'd done. I was still very shocked and scared, and I tried to run away and kind of separate myself from what had happened. 
Brian admitted that he and Amal stayed in a suite at the Plaza Hotel for three nights. They ran up a bill of over two grand. He also confirmed he spent $100 on roses, $6,000 on the trips to San Francisco and Barbados, and ran another one of his dad's account down from being $4,500 in credit to one and a half grand in debit. You might think that's the end of this story, but there's two more twists in this tale. The first one relates to Brian Blackwell's mental health. Three psychiatrists and two psychologists concluded that Brian has Narcissistic Personality Disorder, or NPD. NPD is characterised by an increased sense of self-importance and an excessive urge for admiration. Ted Bundy was thought to have had the same disorder, as does White House farm murderer Jeremy Bamber. The defence put forward that Brian had committed the horrific murders of his parents as a direct result of NPD. In June 2005, Brian pleaded guilty to two counts of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility at Liverpool Crown Court. On June 29, 2005, Mr Justice Royce handed Brian a life sentence for the manslaughter of his parents, Sidney and Jackie. He was given a minimum term to serve of 12 years, though Judge Royce said, The present evidence suggests that that conclusion is unlikely ever to be reached. What he meant by that was he never felt Brian would be deemed well enough to be released. Following his sentencing, Brian stood in the dock of the court as a letter written by him was read out. It said, For every moment of every day, I wish I could turn back the hands of time. I eternally long to be a little boy again, at a time when everyone really loved each other, when we could have a happy time and be a family once more. I miss them more than anything in the world. The guilt will punish and haunt me for 24 hours a day for the rest of my life. In February 2007, Brian appeared at Liverpool Crown Court and was ordered by Judge William George to repay £36,953 under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. Brian didn't dispute the claim and was swiftly returned to Swinfern Hall Young Offenders Institution, which is located in Staffordshire. Ready for the final twist in this tale? Brian Blackwell was reportedly granted parole in 2016 and is now a free man. And that was the story of British murderer Brian Blackwell. Thanks again to Pam for suggesting that case. I've got five new reviews to read out this week and the last one, whew, it's a belter. Thank you firstly Apple Podcast user Bank Addict for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. They said, I'm really enjoying this podcast, recently discovered it and can't stop. Well researched, short and to the point and yet packed with details. Host is easy to listen to, seems very mindful of the victims. Great work. And that's Ada from San Francisco. Thank you very much for that. Thank you Apple Podcast user Neve Allen for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Neve said, I have you on TikTok and I am so glad I did so. I've been looking for a British-only murder podcast and you know exactly how to make them enjoyable, short but informative, keep it going. I binged all the episodes within a week. Thank you Apple Podcast user A Girl Called Naomi for leaving a four-star rating and review of the show. Naomi said, Recently discovered this show and have been listening from Series 1 Episode 1. I love true crime and it's great to find a podcast which features UK murders. I'm from the UK. The show is well-researched and I love Stuart's Northern Accent. I definitely recommend this show if you're interested in UK true crime. 
thank you Apple Podcast user AlexStone87 for leaving a five-star rating and review. Alex said, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year and I really enjoy it. Keep up the good work. Here we go now. Finally, thank you Apple Podcast user Ears in the Back of My Head for leaving British Murders a rating and review. It's a three-star review, but this is gold. <laughs> it's called So Arrogant. There's three O's in So. Reading this out is going to prove my arrogance, I guess. It says, Dude is funny. You know what? I'm going to read this in an American accent. Because they are from America. I'm just going to read it out. Dude is funny, but the superior UK is so much better than the US attitude is unhip and immature. Hopefully his attitude will be more sophisticated about the world when he gets older. Three stars instead of four due to his weirdo inferiority. <laughs> this accent shit. Due to his weirdo inferiority complex about the UK. About the US, sorry. Shut it, dude. It's so embarrassing. Embarrass myself with that accent. This person's referring to my recent collab with Bobby Holmes of Killer Stories. A basic understanding of friendly banter is required for our episodes, admittedly. But the funniest thing about this, it's not that I almost got four stars instead of three, but the same person felt the need to leave Bobby a four-star review slagging me off. <laughs> In Bobby's review, it says, Bobby's shows are very engaging, researched and well-written, but that British dude is so rude and arrogant. He thinks everything is the UK is so... There's four rows this time. Superior to the US. Inferiority complex much? And he makes fun of her for this. I love it. I don't know about you, dear listener, but the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read out in a future episode. Ideally, a positive one. You can do so on iTunes, Podchaser. You can visit my website. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify now, so please do that. As I just said, the show does now have a website, BritishMurders.com. You can leave reviews on there, access my entire backlog of episodes, check out the merch store, register to be a guest. There's all sorts you can do on there. And whilst you're there, why not become a Patreon member? You'll gain early access to ad-free episodes. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash murders. Thank you to Rose Bundy, Olivia Ashman and Natalie Gilbert for buying me some beers recently. I'm never sure who I've shouted out for Patreon who's on there, so I'm just going to shout everyone out again. So at the minute, my patrons, I've got Stacey Josviak, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, Henriette Cole, Alex, Mark Strickson, Katie Howard, Justin Weir, Holly Napier. Thank you so much for your continued support. I really do appreciate it. And finally, continue to send me your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. You'll get the episode covered eventually, and you'll also get a cheeky shout out. But that's it for now. I promise I'm finished. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.